Hi, folks. This is Baruch Lurie, and this is the Baruch Lurie Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, I'm with my good friend and producer, Ari David. A pleasure, as always. We, um, we're really getting a lot of good traction in the podcast world. I'm very pleased to say um, it's, um, it's really quite, quite a show. It's, it's, it's growing. Um, our Sunday show is growing as well. Uh, thanks a lot to some input from from you, Ari, and from from some, from some very cool people and very interesting people as well. So I'm always thankful for that. And um, you know, part of it is also because we've managed to look ahead, right? Uh, obviously, we want to focus always on what's interesting. Um, I think, by and large, what we do is we just talk about things that are interesting to us. But I think it's interesting to uh, our listeners, and that's why we have a growing bunch of listeners now. It's, it's quite, quite nice. Look, um, thinking ahead. One of the nice things about chess is that it does teach you how to, to think ahead, right? Um, you see, in a sense, the, the future. Um, and you take action accordingly. So what do I mean by that? I, it, you don't have to think like a chess player to, to make some basic good decisions. Here's an example. When I worked in my old law firm, uh, a very good law firm, by the way. I won't mention their name because what I'm about to say um, it, it, it's not such a great thing for any law firm to hear about itself, but it was a very good law firm. I, I learned a lot from them in, in many, many great ways. But I was with them, and the issue for a lot of lawyers is when do, we, when do I get to be partner? When do I get, get to be partner? Right? That's, when do I get to be partner? It's, it's the big issue of the day. And one day, I just figured to myself, gosh, you're so gunning for partnership, Barack. Why don't you look at the partners that are here and see if any of them are the kind of partner that you want to be? So, okay, that was easy enough. They were all, I knew who the partners were and who the partners were not and such. And I worked with almost all of them. So I know a lot about their own lives. And all of the partners, all of them, had the following. They were either divorced or very unhappy in their marriages and otherwise struggling with their lives in terms of happiness. And I thought to myself, why do I think that I'm going to be a different kind of partner if I continue on with this firm, right? I mean, it would be silly of me to think that I'd be the, the first happy partner there. And I forced myself out. I simply said, I, I can't be here anymore, even though it was a perfectly nice firm. I, I felt that uh, I learned, like I said, a tremendous amount. I, they gave me growth abilities and everything else. I, I was able to bring in clients and they, they, they wouldn't, st- I, I wasn't worried about the politics or anything else like that. But why would I stay in such a firm, right? I mean, it's, why would you, why you, why would you do that? Just in the same way, why would you go to a, uh, uh, a college for uh, understanding rats, for example, like that would be your major. When you know that nobody going out of such a major is able to teach uh, such a such a major later on, and uh, and you can do nothing with that. Maybe you can be an exterminator, I suppose. But other, other than that, you know, that's not what you would. The college big business. It's a big business, but that's you know you don't. In the exterminating uh, schools, they don't say, did you study rats? Because un- unless you, you go back go back to college, sir, 
get your BA in, in rodentology or whatever. About rats. You know, you get, let us say about rats and then we'll talk, <laughs> my friend. Right? So, so you don't have that. You know, so you, you, you got to ask yourself, well, what's, what's the point of this? Right? So, um, and a lot of people ask, you know, I, I think they don't ask that in college, right? They take philosophy classes, which are really nice, or they take an English major, which are really nice. They don't intend to be English professors because I think, or, or psychology or, sorry, uh, philosophy uh, professors. If, if you want to be a philosophy professor, then by all means, maybe you should major in philosophy. I mean, there aren't a bunch of just street philosophers wandering around exactly. earning six-figure right. salaries. As it turns out, it's, it's not really a very uh, lucrative profession uh, to, to be able to opine about what is good and what is not good. People don't want to hear you. So... Uh, Except liberals, I suppose. But that's another story. Look, you got to think ahead to say, what is this going to serve me in the, in the future, right? And now, do you have to be totally utilitarian about things in life? Do you? Does that mean you should never even go to a movie? Because, by golly, if you go to a movie like, let's say, a fun movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark, by the time you, you come back out of that movie, it, it will not have progressed your life, right? But it was fun, you want to enjoy life. So I'm not talking about that. I'm simply saying if you're actually making moves in your life and you want to be successful, whatever successful means to you, um, then, then really think it through a little bit. You don't have to do things that are totally, totally hateful to yourself, but understand that most successful people are successful because they are doing things that they don't necessarily want to do, right? Most of the time, that's the way it is. And the unsuccessful people are the ones who are doing things that they feel are fun for them. They, in, in essence, they don't want to grow up because that's what growing up is all about, right? Paying the bills, changing diapers uh, of your kids, uh, you know, taking care of tuition, taking care of, uh, you know, car payments, all the things that no one likes to do, but you have to do it if you want to sustain yourself. So the same thing is true with planning out your life. You, you, you know, yes, it's nice to, to want to be an artist. It's nice to, if you want to be a ballerina. But just to understand that unless you're the absolute top dog in those fields, uh, and, and you're not going to have a good life. It's going to be a very unpleasant life. Now I can, I can just hear a bunch of listeners now typing away their emails, and I'll get some emails saying, you know, how can you advocate you know, not doing what you love? Of course I advocate doing what you love, but also what I am advocating is, is being smart about it. Well, you're, you're not contradicting yourself. You start off by saying you were around people who did what they needed to do to, in quotes, succeed, but the success they achieved was the farthest thing from success as you would define it. That's right. They were, def they were succeeding as far as paying the bills, but they right. were failing miserably in the happy department. Right. The, 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 if the goal is to be happy, then... And, and, and success, let's face it, I mean, you can only have, we can always say how you define success and such, but the reality is that money is part of success. It doesn't, doesn't mean you have to be a billionaire, but you know what? You need to, to make at least a certain decent amount to be able to take this or that trip with your family, um, this or that, uh, you know, to be able to live in a, in a decent area in town. These things do affect us. So at some point or another, you're going to have to do something. That is not totally wonderful. It's not, it's not Disneyland. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves at some point and work hard at something. 
Yeah, well, even even those of us who are actors and comedians, it was called show business. Right. There's a whole bunch of business that has to take place for there to be a show. And that business isn't fun. Right. So even those in, in Hollywood pursuing their dreams understand that. That's right. At some point, you're going to have to meet a demand, right? That's the yes. whole point, meeting a demand. And whether you're an actor, uh, you'll only be picked up if the director or the producer perceive you to be somebody who can help meet the demand to maximize uh, the bottom line for them, right? I mean, you know, people, a lot of actors come here and they, they think Hollywood is some sort of big machine, and to some extent it is, but that's not what I'm talking about. They, they come here and they just, they, they feel like, Somebody will just give them a role in a movie just because. No, the reason why you're going to get a role is because somebody perceives you to be valuable, that you will be a return on their money. They don't, they don't just you know, prop you up and give you all this great PR and give you an agent and everything else just because it's fun. They do so because it's worth it to them. Just like I have attorneys in my office. I, I provide them with an office which I pay for. I provide them with paper and computers and I pay for their bar dues and I do a lot of different things. And for all them. the pens they can steal. And all, yeah. <laughs> I knew they were stealing it. Right. <laughs> no. uh, but but, but you know, pens, of course, uh, everything that you can imagine, business cards, I, I, you know, I invest in them. And you know, if they came with the attitude like, well, someone owes me this job whereby I get to be a lawyer and somebody needs to give me all the trappings of being a lawyer... No, it doesn't work that way. Same thing is true with music. Same thing is true with art. Same thing is true with being a writer, an actor, you name it. Any of those glory things that people think are the true, truly valuable uh, ways of being noticed in society, they all apply. You have to meet a demand. You, you have to, you have to uh, connect some way or another. You have to be useful. Yeah, and I think your point, just to clarify about the ballerina thing, is there are certain segments of art that have much less demand than others. Right. If you want to be an action movie star, well, that's a tough business. It's a tough decision to go into it. But at least there are several action movies that come out every year yeah, that, that, that right. would need people to do that. That's right. There are very few ballet shows that pay well in any American city. And this is assuming we're talking about America, not other places right. where it's ballet-centric. Well, look, you can and, – and it's called market segmentation also. You can – let's take music, for example, uh, classical music. You know, classical music has very little uh, – it's a very small market compared to rap music or rock and roll or country. Um, very small. But if you provide – if you truly love classical music, that's great. But – Make sure to, 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 to grab as much of that classical music market as possible. So certainly, if you're able to get everyone who loves classical music to buy your um, orchestra's version of uh, Dvořák's New World, for example, then you're going to make a lot of money. That's for sure. But chances are there's going to be competition within that. It's, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough nut to crack. Likewise, even with these podcasts, right? I mean, we, we have, we've got to be entertaining. To some extent, we need to be entertaining. It's, that's not what we go in with, but we, we know that we have to be interesting. At the very least, you cannot be boring. So we start off, we don't, you and I don't talk about our cup of morning Joe, for example, that I had, and it was really good or anything. And you don't talk about, you know, how you, you know, the latest clothing that you saw that was, you thought was really neat. Yeah, our conversations aren't, 
So I was getting dressed this morning. Right. And I couldn't choose between the... I'm using my NPR voice. No, no, not even that. Oh, I see. Uh, I couldn't choose between the shirt that had buttons or snaps. So I picked the buttons. Then I realized a button fell off. (laughs) You'd be so bad. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, now, it's, it's, this is actually really funny because yeah, I mean it as a joke, but right. you don't have an actual show like that. We don't have a show like that because I presume... Because no one has a show like that because no one listens to a show like that. Well, there, there's a show, like, it's called NPR. <laughs> and, it's, and it's paid for by the government. Right. And surprise, surprise, very few people listen to it. Um, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, and that's for, and we're going there. We're, we're going to all about this. So yeah. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But the point is that you've got to provide value. Anybody listen to this show, I, I hope that every minute that we speak, we're saying something that is interesting and you can say, okay, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. That is providing value to me. And what I'm saying, and we, we start off right away, don't we? I mean, we say, hi, I'm with Ari David, and then boom, we, we move on. Yeah, I push the record button. I say, talk. Exactly. Talk. Come on. <laughs> say something. <laughs> that's right. So we have to ask ourselves the question. What use am I? What, what is my value? And if you don't feel like you have a tremendous use, that's okay. Work at it. Find a way. Find a way to be useful. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be famous. Your usefulness may be that you go down and help in the soup kitchens. That's fine. You become a useful person. And uh, what's it? one of the things I love about Thomas the Tank Engine, and I say this only because you know, I have kids that, that age that like Thomas the Tank Engine. And we're working on getting them as a sponsor for the show. That's they got some big right. bucks. Yeah, exactly right. I, <laughs> well, I bet, you know, it's actually not a bad idea. But here, Thomas the Tank, you know, one of the main themes that you hear from Thomas the Tank Engine is uh, they all talk to each other about being a really useful engine. Yeah. That's, I, I love that. And different engines do different things. Yeah, freight, passengers, switching. You, you got the idea. Yeah. And the usefulness must be there. That's the key thing. And if any time they, they kind of do something odd about it or refuse to work, they're, they're, they're chastised not because they've been battered. They're chastised because they're, they violated the central command, which is being useful. And I love that. I really like that. And it's, it's a Christian-based uh, show. People don't know that. But it was developed by, I believe, a pastor. And um, it really has great values and and uh, you get the sense that there's teamwork is very important. A lot of great values in it. But be useful. That's the point. Look for a way to be useful. You don't have to be useful right now. Uh, the last thing I want you to do is to be depressed about it. Uh, but, but if you are depressed about it, if you find yourself uh, to be one of those people that says, what, you know, what am I really providing in the world? Who am I? I'm, I'm nothing. Uh, you know what? You don't have to be nothing. Go out there. Find Find something to be useful. Let God guide you by stepping out your door and fall ass backwards into it. Yeah, that's, you know, into you could very well do that. There's a there's a great part of Christianity, and you know, both of us are Jewish, so I don't know exactly how to phrase this, but something like the concept of good works, that the the belief that God made all of us and gave all of us a talent, no matter what it is, and if you don't know what it is, your job is to figure that out. That's right. And not all of us can be a drummer like John Bonham or a guitarist like Jimi Hendrix. And a lot of us don't want to be. But a lot of us can be really good electricians or plumbers or contractors. The whole world never is is uh, uh, going to be sad about having another really good contractor out there who can fix stuff in someone's home. Sure. 
You know, sure. uh, the, a great line from the movie Run, Runaway Train, you know, that great performance by John Voight is he's telling a story about how uh, he couldn't succeed. He wound up in prison because he couldn't do that simple job of just being a janitor and taking pride in cleaning the floors and toilets. You know, that's a very good line. Um, and it is something that you, you are you're not doing your duty. Put it that way. If you are not finding a way to be useful. How about that? You're not doing your duty. If you are not finding how you can be useful, and and here the tri the tricks of the trade are find a demand and try to meet it. Okay, Steve Jobs, for example, he created demand for that matter, but he he was really finding demand. The demand, if you if you wanted to find it, would be uh, very convenient uses of technology. Put it that if you put it that yeah. way simply, then yeah, he met that demand really well. Right, and seeing how technology is currently used, and ask the question, how can this be done better? Right. So, but but let me move on to this because what I'm saying is that if you find that demand, you'll you, you, at first you may say, well, that's not my, what my chosen field is. Well, you know what? You can still love acting. You can still love being a musician. You may not, if you're not John Bonham, like you said, or Jimi Hendrix, then fine. You can still play. You can still have a great time. You can still pal around and, and jam with your friends. No one's stopping you from doing that. You can even do a, uh, you know, a, a little recording session and, and see how it fares in, in the market out there. And considering but, but, how those two guys died, you might be a lot happier, yeah, right. as it turns out. Yeah, but, 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 but bear with me on this. You, you just might very well be able to find that you're very happy as it is. You're useful. You're, you're more happy doing something that you think you don't love than doing something that you do supposedly love but making very little money at it, being not appreciated for it at all, right? I mean, there, there are many people out there who are fantastic actors. They're, they're, they're a dime a dozen, many. There are many Tom Cruises out there or Paul Newmans out there. There, there are many, many. Okay, so it's it's not hard to be a great actor. That's not the reason why people go to see a movie. By the way, they don't see a movie because it's so, the, the acting is so superb. No, they go there because the entertainment is there, right? So let's say you go there, you want to be an actor, and and you you do these kind of commercials here and there, and you're struggling for work all the time, and life is just not happy for you. But if you'd gone to owning your family's plumbing business, for example and you're making money, and people are calling you all the time because you invented this new kind of plumbing device, and all of a sudden, orders are coming in, and you're getting a patent, and people are somehow applying that plumbing uh, faucet in a different way, and you're just making hand over fist, and then you can give to charities, for example, right? I mean, one of my favorite people is it's a mutually, uh, you know, a friend of yours as well. I won't name him, but um, he, he was a guy that uh, graduated from a, a not well-recognized college, and he started a furniture business, and he just did very well in it. And he started kind of maneuvering around, had a couple of different ideas about it. It wasn't his chosen field in life, but now he's a multi-multi-millionaire. And guess what? He's retired, and now he's giving to this or that charity that he loves. He's very passionate about it. And he's really, what, what do you call it, self-actuated. So who's happier, right? I mean, this guy that I'm talking about um, or the, the, the actor who chose his field and he never got anything beyond a Purina Catchow commercial, right? I mean, who's happier?
And also, if you want to be an actor, make a bunch of money and then make your own movies. Yeah. Once you've made your own movies. That's right. I, one of my uh, um, distant relatives is uh, exactly that. He's, uh, he's a, almost a billionaire. And he decided to make his own movies, exactly what you just said. And, you know, that's how you do it. And this is not a, an episode about happiness, by the way. This is an episode about obligation to find out how you might be useful. That's and really about works. paying your dues so you can do what you want. Right. And now here is where it takes on. Now, this is the NPR part of the discussion. Here's where government truly hurts us because it actually encourages more of the kind of thinking, uh, the entitlement thinking of, well, if I want to be an actor, I should, be, I should have a job that lets me do all the acting that I want to do, regardless of whether people actually have a demand for it, right? So we'll just make a, a bunch of jobs associated with that. Um, NPR is a, is a good example. Here, here's a station, and, and we talked before about how there's, you know, classical music has a very small segment of society, right, compared to rap and country and rock and roll. But if you could garner it, the whole thing, if you could sell a CD to each person who loves classical music, you'll be very wealthy. You'll be well-known at the very least. That's what NPR is. NPR is even less known than classical music. But it's such a small segment of society, but it's publicly funded. Nobody listens to it, but it's well-known. So... If you can get everyone, it's, it's, it, I mean, obviously millions of people listen to it, but it's a very tiny fraction of society as a whole. Of the radio market. Of the radio market. Tiny. But because they appeal to what I call the nonsense people, people that are, are paying attention to truly nonsense, the things that you just talked about, the button and, and the, versus the zipper and here's what happened. It's got the smoke. This bacon has a smoky flavor. Tell me more about that bacon flavor. I couldn't care less. Right, but there are people who do care about that, and they think they're listening to erudition, fantastic intellectual debate in this process. And it's like it's mind-numbing how boring this is. <laughs> the NPR station, but they're all over. They, you know, I. It's I, like that party guest at a cocktail party that everyone says you got to hear this guy talk, and then the most just insipid bore right. is there pontificating. On and on about this useless about nothing. yachts. Yeah, it's just... and, and everyone goes, leaves and goes, wow, I'm so glad you heard it. And you're like, are you all nuts? <laughs> it, it, in fact, um, last night we watched Seinfeld, you know, the reruns. Because yeah, it's nice, wholesome family entertainment. It is very funny. And uh, the episode about the English patient was on. And the English patient is my favorite movie. My favorite movie, why? To make fun of. Because it is the stupidest, most boring, most illogical, idiotic, stupid movie that ever won the Academy Award that millions of people think is just brilliant. And Elaine can't stand the movie. And she's, it's one of those great plots about speaking truth to power. Right. And she's losing friends over it. And she was fired from her job because she doesn't like the movie. Right. Not, and she's the only one who's willing to say the emperor really is naked. Right. It's, it's, it's really true. Um, <laughs> and as far as that. I, I'm glad you said that because I remember seeing The English Patient and it was, I, I saw it in a cloud in my mind. I saw it on January 1st. For, for whatever reason, I remember that it was January 1. It was the New Year's Day. And I uh, was with a, a date at the time, but I just broke, uh, the woman had just broken up with me. And I was just devastated, heartbroken about the whole thing. And the English patient was out in the theaters. And I couldn't 
concentrate on the movie at all because I was just thinking about this woman who had broken up with me and I was so sad. And, and uh, even though I was on a date with this other woman, it wasn't fair to her, I'm sure. But that's not the point. And the point is, by the time I left the movie, even though I was there watching the screen the entire time, I had no idea what was actually going on because my mind was elsewhere. And so, but, but everyone had told me what a great movie it was. And then I heard other people like you, like Elaine from Seinfeld, saying what a terrible movie it was. And I, you and I think alike so much. My guess is that's the way I would think about the movie, too. Like it's a whole lot of nothing. I hate movies that are a whole lot of nothing. Uh, there are plenty of those movies, by the way. Prince of Tides, by the way, it's another movie. Like, oh, what, what do you want from me? <laughs> but, but that's, okay, let's, let's, let's not get too far afield from it. Um, yeah, but you're making the point. It's, it's yeah. that people think this stuff is good because someone just told them it's good. And not only is it not good, it's 180 degrees from good. It's well, as bad as you could imagine. Right, but here's the point, is that people listen to it because it's national public radio. And they get this sense, because it's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts or whatever it is, um, that it must be rock-solid fantastic. And, and they listen to this, and they just, they, like you said, people decide it's really good because other people are deciding that it's good. And they don't have their own independent judgment on the matter. Here's another example of that. And I don't think we differ on this, but if we do, so, so be it. Cage fight. <laughs> That's right. Here's, here's the difference. Uh, not, not the difference. The, uh, the issue is, is modern art. Modern art, unlike modern music, rock and roll and such, um, or movies, for that matter. Modern art is funded largely by the public sector. So in the old days, it used to be kings and queens would commission this or that artist to make this or that particular kind of painting. Um, the, the, um, the artist today gets funded from the government. And the government doesn't have any purpose whatsoever. They just throw money to whoever is out there. There's no... There's no art that's actually meeting a demand. Like, rock and roll has got to meet a demand, right? If you make the same kind of music as, no matter how good you are, if you make music that's identical to U2 sound, for example, you, no one's going to listen to you because you're copycatting, right? That's not cool. Uh, likewise, if you're going to um, uh, make a uh, sound that's just like the Beatles, you've got you to invent your own thing. You've got to make a new sound. You've got to be engaging. You've got to lift up the soul, right? And that's what, that's what makes us want to get up and dance sometimes uh, or to think things through. And you don't listen to something that's painful to hear. You don't listen to the equivalent of a, a banging gong, right? right? You, you, you like melody. You like changes in your music. You like to, you, to hear virtuosity in your music. But art, that ain't so with art. Art, anything goes in terms of whether or not you meet demand means nothing. Well, I, I would differ modern from you in today. that in the modern art world, the by and large, the good stuff is not funded by grants in the government. Because there is good stuff out of there. Of course, of course there but, is. But the, here's the, the wonderful uh, contradiction in all of this. The stuff that's funded by the government through grants is also promoted and also told by the intelligentsia how great it is. Yeah. Because the guy fig figured out how to fill out the grant application. The, uh, I have some beautiful pieces of modern art from an artist who I adore. 
Right. And I bought those pieces for a song because the guy's essentially, a, you know, the old cliche, a starving artist. And his stuff is good, but he doesn't have the government telling every art dealer in L.A. how great his stuff is and the uh, demand to have this stuff in galleries. To his credit, he sold some of his pieces to people like, say, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, have one of his yeah, things yeah. there. In other words, he's succeeded beyond all measure, beyond most modern artists like that. But the interesting thing is... It's the government handout that stifles the quality of art. Only an artist like him who's, who's incentivized to only be good will ever be good. Well, here's my, here's my analogy. And, and then I want to give another example of these things happening. Giving money to this or that artist because he filled out the grant, as you said, is the equivalent of the government giving half a billion dollars to a company called Solyndra. Exactly. They're precisely. They're picking winners and losers in an industry (laughs) called art. And I I prefer the term picking losers. That's what they're all losers. I I haven't seen a winner yet. (laughs) Well, you're a winner if you get this this grant, right? Obviously, you know, the people are winners, the company, no, you know. You you created this this rock, you know, a boulder and you put it on a sidewalk and then you take a picture of it and and all of a sudden you're getting $100,000 for this crap. Because it is crap, folks. I mean, let, let, let's really call a spade a spade. And uh, somebody who did something equivalent, maybe even slightly better, is not getting anything like that. And uh, so they've picked the winner in that, in that sense. Um, it's all terrible art. Not all of it, obviously. Modern art is... But when I talk about modern art, I'm talking about the, the nonsensical kind of modern art. The one like a rock on a sidewalk where, as Dennis Prager likes to talk about, you know, where they put a crucifix in a, in a pile of urine... It's disgusting. I think to clarify, wait, 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 what wait. you're saying is art that's definitely not even pretty. It's, it's not even it's pretty. It's not even aesthetically pleasing to look at for forgetting what it, if it has a meaning or not. It has art that has no purpose. And, uh, and now I can hear all the emails typing away saying, what are you talking about, Mr. Laurie? You know, you does art have to have a purpose? Yeah, art has to have a purpose. It has to take me from point A to point B. That's it. That's the, that's the purpose. Just like music takes you from point A to point B. You hear the beginning of a song, you're, you're carried through until the end of the song, and then there's some sort of emotional, like, wow, I've just, I've gone somewhere. Yeah, a climax, a release, a, an uplift. That's right. And, and with art, it's, if you remember your art history class, which most of these stone people don't, right. it's called the artistic experience, that wow flash. When right. you see something truly great, or even if it's not truly great, it, the experience of it. And when you see this modern stuff, which is... Uh, artistic experience free right then it, it, it can't de- by definition be art a right. twisted piece of you know wrought iron or, or, yeah, yeah it's just wrought iron it That's isn't right. anything it's else nothing. but they want to they, they they are hoping to to find meaning in it i mean once my dad told me a very cute story he said uh when he was four years old or so he understood the concept of reading and um but he didn't obviously he didn't know how to read but he understood He's, he knew what letters were and so what he did is he put a bunch of letters together, just randomly, you know, a letter, the, it was in Hebrew, but the letter A, let's say, and then the Z, then a Q, and then a P, and he would string them all along, and then he would give it to his parents and say, what does this say, <laughs> right? And, which I always thought was so amusing, um, and, but that's what I think a lot of artists do today with their art. They create nothing, like that twisted piece of wrought iron, like you mentioned, and then they hope somebody thinks that, that something's great out of this. You know what? If you can't figure out what you're saying or you have to explain it even worse, 
then it's not art. Yeah, there's a that? joke about one of those beat writers from the, like the 1950s, you know, the beat era, mm-hmm. and some literary person who knows good books was asked, "What do you think of this?" And they said, "It's just what your dad did." He said, "That's not writing. That's typing." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's literally just typing. Well, who knows? Maybe one day uh, the the 50 monkeys in the in the room will indeed put out the great American novel because that's all they're going to be doing is uh, just typing away a bunch of letters on a page. And that might indeed be considered the great American novel. You know, Look, no, let's, one asked, let's no one asked the important question though. Okay. Hold Who's going to clean the typewriters? All right. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> but, but let's talk about other areas where, um, you know, government is, is disincentivizing people from meeting demand in the first place. Right. And they do it in many different ways. Um, minimum wage, believe it or not, is an example of where government prevents people from meeting demand. Because what minimum wage does, including other regulations, is imposes yet another burden. And it puts the business in a standpoint of not taking risk and not trying to find out what that demand is. Right. So uh, and I'll give a very good example of an industry uh, of that in a moment. But you, you have minimum wage and other regulations, and so all the company is, can do at this point is just try to survive with what it actually has, what, it, what its known business is. It won't take the risk. It won't uh, invest the extra capital that it doesn't have into uh, seeing different ideas. I mean, the classic examples, uh, I think it was Home Depot and many other companies that we now know, FedEx is another example, the, the, the CEOs of those companies, the founders of those companies, better yet, say today that if they were to begin their businesses today, they would never have been able to get off the ground uh, because of all the regulations that imposed upon them. They, they couldn't take those risks. So they, they can't meet demand in the process, right? So uh, a classic example, I said I was going to give an example, is the pharmaceutical industry. Right? Now, here's an industry that still makes a decent chunk of change. But they're slowly putting more and more restrictions on, via the FDA, upon the pharmaceutical industry, such that there's so much testing required, so many um, uh, what are, lab, lab results required, that they can never get to the point where they are actually able to develop these new drugs. So new drugs are being stifled in the process. And when you Stifle new drugs. You, you're stifling demand for that drug. That's the way it works. And, if it, and here, demand is very simple. Hey, if it cures uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, guess what? There's going to be some demand for that. Hey, if it cures uh, uh, cholesterol uh, as, a, as a problem, that's gonna, there's going to be demand for that. Hey, if it, if it cures even the common cold, there's going to be a dramatic uh, cure, uh, demand for that. We are constantly stifling the meeting of, of demand, the quest for uh, resolving demand. So this is, uh, this is where we're at. And this is a, 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 you know, when we are, we, we started off by saying, you've got to meet your, de- your own demand. You've got to find a way to, to figure out how you're useful, right? And government not only stifles it, but encourages you to think that you should only do something that that you love, that has nothing to do with actually being useful to society. Or it does have a, bar, a balance between market demand and what you love. Right. And in other words, government has become the great enabler to, to uh, 
to feed your narcissism. That's what it's been. That's what it's come. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that we're, I think it's going to be some time before we get out of this. And um, already people are, there are more people on welfare than ever, more people on food stamps than ever. There are more people on, on disability than ever. I think some, some huge number. Can I make a quick point and see what you think of this? Yeah. Because I think there's a, a wonderful trap in this as well that mm-hmm. is so overlooked. Because so often the, the government will say to us, and this is the argument they make for things like Solyndra or stimulus or food stamps. Nancy Pelosi said the best way to stimulate the economy is food stamps. People get it and then they'll spend it, right? So the, there's, a, there's two sides to the broken windows theory. One is the law enforcement part, the famous, if there are broken windows, fix them, because by having a broken window, it causes more crime. But the other side of it is there's an economic uh, stimulus theory behind broken windows. You've probably heard it, which is uh, a shop owner gets a broken window, complains to the authorities, and the authorities come, the commissars of the, the big government program, and tell him how lucky he is, how by fixing that window and spending that money, that money will then go rocketing through the economy and come back and stimulate more business for him. And he'll acquire wealth. Now, let's just stipulate for a second that that is true, that he will acquire wealth and amass it based on the number of broken windows that he has to the point where he's incentivized to get kids to throw rocks at his windows to break them. Okay, so he acquires wealth. Great. What's lost in all this is how that money that went and all those resources and all that manpower and all that uh, enterprise and innovation that is now being applied to uh, the glass industry to fix windows could have been applied somewhere else in the total economy oh. to fabricating silicon wafers out of the sand instead yeah, of yeah. glass I mean, windows. Look, my, my point is yeah. the, the trap that so many people fall in is thinking that the acquisition of wealth is the equivalent of acquiring human progress. Uh, I, I don't disagree with you. I think your main point is that uh, government basically creates artificial demand. Right. And, and they try to rationalize it. I mean, Obama, you know, so I don't say Barack Obama very much. Uh, I just, I don't want that name associated. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with the same name. But Obama said during the 08 election, I believe, when somebody complained to him about the high taxes, he, this is how he created logic out of it. He said, well, the higher the taxes, the more your money goes to provide services and, and roads for, uh, for people. And those people get paid and they in turn will be able now to buy more products for you. So you win, sir. You win. It's exactly what you just said. Right. Of course, they don't know anything about what they're talking about. Um, free, you know, when you free up capital, that's, that's what actually wins at the end of the day. Look, it's, it's this ultimate end of the notion of, I mean, we, when we started off this country, in fact, even before this country, it was always understood that you must be useful to society one way or the other, even during the feudal days. You have an obligation. You have an obligation. To make yourself you have an obligation. useful. So go, go forward and till the land. Go forward and, and uh, you know, put uh, shoe, um, uh, shoes on your horses, horseshoes on your, on your horses. Go forward and make a, a whip and a buggy uh, for, so that they have transportation. Go Go forward and make nuts and bolts for other things. You get the idea. You, you, you've got to be, do this, but, but never, even putting aside capitalism and democracy and all those wonderful things that we love, it was always assumed 
no matter what system you were in, that you should make yourself useful. And here, we live in a society that doesn't even ask that question anymore. It, it instead says, you need to just pay me money, regardless of my, my status. And I don't even have to think in terms of demand. So look, don't be one of those people, folks. I guess that's the bottom line. Don't be one of those people. We always look ahead to how we can be useful, how we can meet demand. Meeting demand is the best way to be useful. And with that, I think I'll conclude and tell you what a pleasure it was talking uh, with you, Ari, today. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening. This is Baruch Lurie signing off at the Baruch Lurie Podcast. See you again soon.